0: Good to see everybody. It's good to see your faces. That's fun. It's a exciting, kind of monumental milestone. There, Um, we're going to look at uh, Acts. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 28. We're going to be looking together today. We're going to be finishing out the series on the book of Acts here. And so, I'm going to read in just a moment from Acts chapter 28, starting in verse 17 to the end of the book. Uh, we do have two high school graduates this year, Anna Trot and Katie Pratt, are graduating. Congratulations. We have some other graduates we'll be celebrating from master's programs, PhDs, and things as well later in the summer here, but uh, wanted to celebrate them on their graduation day today, so that's an exciting time. Well, listen with me. If you have your Bibles, open to Acts chapter 28. I'm going to read from starting in verse 17. The end of the chapter. This is Paul. He's arrived in Rome after a long journey, shipwrecked, bitten by a viper. All sorts of things have happened to him. And here he is in Rome. Verse 17. After three days, he called together the local elders, local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here have reported or spoken any evil against you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Now they had appointed a day for him. They came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning until evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses. And from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time we have here together this morning. In many ways, recipients of the gospel going forward to Gentiles, the work that you began through the Apostle Paul and the other apostles, through the disciples who preached boldly and without hindrance. And so, Father, we pray, Lord, I pray for my own heart, that you would enable me to preach boldly. Pray that every person here would be able to listen without hindrance, that they would see with the eyes of their hearts, they would believe, and they would be saved if they do not yet know you. And for all of us, that our, strength, our faith might be strengthened in our risen Savior, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I read a great biography this week called Counting the Cost, Kidnapped in the Niger Delta. And I meant to bring it and show you the copy of it, but we'll try to link it later this week to our uh, newsletter. And this story, Counting the Cost, it told the story of medical missionaries who, through great difficulties, this is in 2017, so it's a recent story, through great difficulties, they set up and they ran a clinic in one of the most dangerous areas of the world. They survived being kidnapped by a local militant group. They were led deep into the flooded jungle thickets. They were unable to be seen by passing search parties, looking for them. And the one thing that the, re- the reader, that I was maybe expecting to read, as, a con- as we would hear as a constant theme that there was this feeling of hopelessness that they would have was actually very absent in this book. They were watched around the clock. They were under constant threat of death, both from these militants and also from the malaria-bearing mosquitoes. They were unaware if anyone would ever find them or if they would cease to be of value to their captors, they would simply be killed. And yet, as I think back, at least over the book in my reading, I can't remember a tone of hopelessness at all. It was one of hope that went far beyond their circumstances. Well, as we come to the, book of, at the end of the book of Acts here this morning, Paul tells his amazing conversion story twice. He's imprisoned, he's shipwrecked, he's bitten by a snake, he's imprisoned again in Rome, and there we're left, just as I just read, wondering what happens to him. And yet, through it all, from Acts chapter 22 through the end in chapter 28, there is a note of hope. And specifically, there's the note of the hope of the resurrection. That's the hope that sustained Paul. It's what fueled his ministry. And I believe it's exactly the hope that we need today today, to be sustained in God's calling in our lives as well. The hope of the resurrection. And so I don't know how you're entering into worship here this morning. Maybe you're exhausted and you feel hopeless and you feel tired. Maybe you're facing a diagnosis that you're not sure exactly what it all entails and what it's going to mean moving forward. Maybe you're just starting out, heading out into the world and you have a hope, but perhaps it's a misplaced hope in the world all around you and it's all its possibilities Or maybe you'd say, well, I I don't necessarily feel hopeless here this morning, but I wouldn't say I'm full of hope either. Well, regardless of how you come in here this morning, I want you to leave knowing the hope of the resurrection is the greatest hope that you can possibly have. It is the thing that will be able to sustain you in Christ as you walk with him all of your days. And so here's the main point I want us to take from all of Powell's travel, his preaching, his suffering at the end of the book of Acts. The hope of the resurrection is so substantial, the hope of the resurrection is so substantial that it is able to sustain us no matter what difficulty we are facing. The hope of the resurrection is so substantial that it's able to sustain us no matter what difficulty we are facing. And so I want us to just look at two points here this morning. The hope of the resurrection that motivated Paul and the hope of the resurrection that must motivate our life today. So the hope of the resurrection that motivated Paul, and the hope of the resurrection that must motivate our life today. And I'm just going to put that in the first person as I say it when we get there. The hope of the resurrection that we can all say must motivate my life today. So let's look first here at the resurrection that motivated Paul in Acts chapter 22 through 28. Now, I just want to acknowledge, it's pretty ridiculous that we're looking at Acts chapter 22 through 28 here this morning. I just want to acknowledge that is a big chunk of scripture to be looking at it. But, but the more I thought about it, and the more I thought about how to break it up, and, and the time that we had scheduled for this series, it, it kind of meant that something drastic had to be done. And actually, this is the second time that as we, or it's actually the third time I've been a part of a preaching team that went through the book of Acts, and we did this Two of those times, we ended it in this same way, because frankly, you get to the end of Acts, and it's one big story from 22 all the way to the end. Now, it takes about two and a half years for that story to unfold, but it's really one story. And so, let me try to summarize what's happening in Acts 22 through 28, and then I want us to look at the hope of the resurrection that's kind of a thread that kind of weaves itself through the whole chapter, all these chapters. So, Paul's saying goodbye, like we saw last week, to the Ephesian elders, and he's in Miletus. He's taking a ship, and he's on his way down to Jerusalem. And as he's on his way down to Jerusalem, there are prophets, Christians, who are prophesying over him and saying, you're going to be bound, and you're going to be taken to Rome. You're going to be imprisoned for preaching the gospel, so don't go to Jerusalem. But Paul felt compelled I must go there, and he wanted to be there by Pentecost, so he was hurrying his way down there, or down there, and so as he was hurrying his way to Jerusalem, he gets to Jerusalem finally, and indeed, he's arrested. The Jews thought he was defiling the temple because he had come with some Gentiles with him, and in Acts chapter 21 and 22, there's a religious council, the Sanhedrin, and he's tried by them. There's a plot to ambush him and kill him. He finds out about it. He's saved. And he stands before Felix. And Felix was a Roman governor who was a notoriously bad Roman governor. But Felix kind of uh, keeps him there and keeps him around for two years. And then Felix, as his uh, end is nearing, Festus comes into power. And Paul realizes potentially that he's going to be sent back to the Jews. And he doesn't know what's going to happen. So he appeals to Caesar. He stands before King Agrippa. And Agrippa, um, he has already appealed to Caesar And so he sends him off. He would have released him, but he sends him off to see Caesar. And so they're put on a ship, and they head for Rome. Now winter is approaching, and if if you know the kind of Mediterranean Sea at this time, and you were a sailor, you would know you don't want to sail at this time of year. But there was also grain shipments, which was probably the ship that was, he was on was taking. And they were pretty necessary to be kind of continuing to bring into Italy. And so sailors would risk it. And it seems that Paul gets on one of these ships that is with one, these sailors who are risking their lives to take this valuable grain um, kind of hold to, to Italy. They're there. They're on their way, actually. They face a big storm. They're shipwrecked in Malta. Eventually, three months later, they make it to Italy, and here he is. He's in Rome, and he's preaching the gospel with boldness and without hindrance, and the the book of Acts just ends like that. No closure. It's really the point. The gospel is still moving forward into the world. So, that's obviously a really broad summary of six chapters. I'd invite you to read that later as you have time this week, but. What I want us to do is I want us to see kind of what is the thread that weaves its way all the way through is this hope of the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection. So we're going to have these up on the screen, but if you have your Bible, I just invite you to kind of follow along as I go. Uh, The first one is Acts 22.1. This is Paul recounting how Jesus appears to him. And the fact that Jesus appears to him shows, shows us Jesus is alive. And Jesus says, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. Jesus is alive. Even as John, Pastor John prayed when, during the prayer there and looking at Colossians 3.1, setting our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, that he is alive. He is risen from the dead. And three times in the book of Acts, we're told of the conversion of the Apostle Paul. It's kind of this conversion story that keeps being repeated. And it's by far, I think, the most repeated conversion story in all of Scripture. And each time we hear it, there's a reminder. Jesus is alive. And it's this risen Jesus that appeared to Paul, and this risen Jesus appeared to Paul, and just so we don't forget, this is Paul, the one who arrested and killed Christians. This is Paul who was ravaging the church, and now here is Paul, one who loves and worships and is preaching Jesus. So we might ask the question, and this might be the question that everybody was asking when they first met Paul, how did a killer become a preacher? How did a a ravager become one who rejoiced in the resurrection? The reason is, very simply, Jesus is alive, and Jesus appeared to him, and the resurrection of of Christ is really, it's right at the heart of the call for Paul to preach. Why does he preach? Because Jesus is alive. Why does he call people to repentance? Because Jesus is alive, and they can find life in him. So Jesus opened Paul's eyes, and now Paul's preaching good news to everyone. So Jesus is alive. He appears to him three different occasions throughout the book of Acts. Look at 23.6. Paul's on trial for his preaching, and it says this. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, he's talking to this group, and he realizes part of them are Sadducees, the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers! I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial." Now, look, he knew who he was talking to, and I don't know if this is a good strategy or not to kind of divide and try to conquer, but essentially he knows the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection at all, and the Pharisees do, a resurrection just broadly speaking, not the resurrection of Jesus. Neither, neither of them did at this point. And so, but he realizes he wants to kind of divide and conquer. He says, I'm a Pharisee, and it's because, with respect, look what he says, to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Now, the way he says it there, the hope and the resurrection, is really grammatically the same way of saying the hope of the resurrection. That's why he's on trial. Why are we taking you to court, Paul? Because you believe Jesus rose from the dead. So he knew who he was talking to. He clearly believes in the resurrection. And if he ultimately understands that if you boil it all down, the hope of the resurrection is why he's on trial. Now, if we keep going, look at Acts chapter 24, verse 14. Paul's answering accusers again, so he's making a lot of defenses throughout this section. And he he answers his accusers before Felix, and he says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Now, we'll come back to that in just a second, but, but look at 2519. He keeps going, and this is his defense before Agrippa. He says, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about this certain Jesus. This, this is kind of a recounting of the charge. And so they're saying, essentially, there are disputing points with the Jews, with Paul here, and this certain Jesus, who was dead... But whom Paul asserted to be alive. So people recognized this Paul who's preaching, he knows that there, he is asserting that Jesus is alive. And then in Acts chapter 28, verse 20, Paul just says this it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. The hope of Israel. And so what Paul's doing in all of these defenses with these various people is he's recognizing the Jews are making accusations against him, but he's making a case from scripture that the law and the prophets are pointing forward to Jesus and that he had to rise from the dead. And so if you remember, as we've gone throughout the book of Acts, over and over and over again, we've seen the apostles, when they were preaching, they were proving that Jesus is the Christ. And they were proving that Jesus is the Christ from the Old Testament. So essentially what Paul's doing is he's reminding them the hope of Israel is the ultimate hope that all of the Old Testament was pointing for, forward to. That there was one who would come after the li- in the line of David who would eternally sit on the throne. A resurrected king. A resurrected living savior. Ezekiel, the prophet, prophet, he spoke of the valley of dry bones that although these bones were dead, they could live. Even Jonah talked about being, or was in the belly of the fish for three days, showing and prefiguring Jesus being in the grave three days. And so what Paul's doing is he's reminding them, look, this isn't just the fact that I saw him alive, which I did, This is also the hope of Israel. This is the hope of all the scriptures. And so he's continually bringing them back to this point. Jesus is seen in the Old Testament. He was expected in the Old Testament. And now he's come. You killed him, like they say. Peter says that over and over again. But now he's risen from the dead. And so as Paul makes his defense, he's on trial because of the hope of this promise of God. That's what he says in Acts 26, 6 and 7. And for this hope I'm accused by the Jews, O King. He's, he's making his defense, and he's saying, Can you believe it, King? <laughs> I, I'm on trial because I'm saying somebody's alive. And then he goes on, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? The resurrection ultimately, it does fulfill Scripture but it demonstrates the power of God. And it's as if Paul is looking around and he's, and he's kind of saying like, look guys, you, you know we're talking about God here, right? You know we're talking about the same God who parted the Red Sea, who gave victory to his people, who continually worked, who spoke through the prophets. You know we're talking about the same God, right? So why is it so incredible that God would raise the dead? Why is that so hard to get our minds around? In fact, if anything, it just kind of shows and and kind of is right in line with what they had seen all throughout the Old Testament. Essentially, Paul's saying, wouldn't it be more incredible if God couldn't raise the dead? Wouldn't that be more troubling to you? And, And really, that's the question that every single person on this planet ultimately needs to grapple with. Christianity means nothing if the resurrection didn't happen. Paul later will say, I'm to be pitied of all men if Jesus has not risen. Everything, Christianity, hangs on the resurrection, which is the point that Paul and Peter and the others have been making. The Messiah who brings victory, who has been long awaited, he has come and he's alive even though he was crucified. So Paul, he faced all of these persecutions. He walked through all of these trials through the end of the book of Acts. And the reason why he could face these things, why he could face them with joy, is because he knew he had a risen Savior. <clears throat> Here's how he said it in 2 Corinthians nine. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises us the dead so Paul acknowledged listen look we felt like we had received the sentence of death but even when we're facing death and this holds true for us today even when we're facing death we can be at that moment like Paul and say that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on a God who raises the dead and so why could Paul do all of these amazing things why could we see God's working in the early church and continue to see it for 2,000 years? And the reason is, is because we have a God who has risen, raised the dead, his son from the dead. He is now alive. We have life in him and we can walk with him each day. So, so, so maybe, you know, sometimes, you know, like I started with this uh, biography of the, the missionaries in the Niger Delta and I talked to somebody once who, they read, a, they read Jim Elliott's biography. And after they read it, they said, you know, I'm just, that's not really that motivating to me, honestly. If I'm honest, it, it just seems like these just kind of superhuman kind of Christian. And I, I can't do that. But I think what the book of Acts should show us is, you no, know, Paul is just a weak man. Paul was a broken man, and he had faith in a living Savior. That's our call to all of us. And the book of Acts shows us that, to put our faith in this Savior who is alive. And this really leads us to our second point here. And again, I'm going to say it in the first person so we can each personally be applying it. The hope of the resurrection that must motivate my life today. The hope of the resurrection that must motivate my life today. And I want us to look at three ways that the hope of the resurrection should be motivating us. It should be motivating us to live for Jesus, it should be motivating us to wait on Jesus, and it should be motivating us to be bold for Jesus. To live for Jesus, to wait on Jesus and to be bold for Jesus. That's how I think the the hope of the resurrection should be affecting us, what I want us to focus on here today. So let's look first here at the hope of the resurrection that motivates me to live for Jesus. The hope of the resurrection that motivates me to live for Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.15. Paul says this, he said, He died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Don't you love how he, he connects how we should live with the death and the resurrection of Jesus? Jesus died for all so that those who live, i.e. Christians, might no longer live for themselves, who are they living for? But for him who for our sake died and was raised. Now, there, there are a lot of answers that are correct, that somebody could give to the question, you know, why did Jesus die for me? Why did he have to die for me? You know, we could answer, and all of these are correct. He he died for me because he loves me. He wanted to demonstrate his love for me. He he died for me because he wanted to forgive me. He died for me because he he wanted to redeem me and bring me back or to reconcile me with him he died for me in order for me to be justified and declared righteous in his sight as if I had never sinned to be white as snow and spotless. But according to 2 Corinthians 5.15 here, there's something else. Jesus died for me so that I might no longer live for myself. The reason, one of the reasons Jesus died for us, not only to do all these wonderful things and save us and forgive us and justify us and redeem us and reconcile us, all of those things are true, but he also did this so that we might no longer, we might not live for ourselves, but for him. So, you know, we touched on this last week when we talked about the tone of Paul's life. We looked at Galatians 2.20. And what we saw is the gospel sets us free that we might no longer live for ourselves. You know, Tim Keller calls it the freedom of self-forgetfulness. And so we can be free in this way. The reason we can be free not to live for ourselves is because we have a Savior who's died for us, who's risen from the grave for us, and now gave us his life for us, and we can live for him. His life for mine, and now my life is lived for him. In that way, you know, I think it's overly simplistic if we just say, Jesus died to bring us to God, which is true. Jesus died to bring us to heaven, which is wonderful. But it's also, he died so that we can live for him now. It's not just something far off in the future and we just kind of got to gut it out now. It's a, he's calling us to live for him now. You know, otherwise, what would be the point of life once you become a Christian if they're not supposed to live here, if you're just kind of waiting, if it's just, if all earth is, is just a great big like doctor's waiting room, what are we doing? God says, if Paul says here that our lives are meant to be lived for him, that we can glorify him in everything that we do, whether we eat or drink, we can do it all for the glory of God. And so there's meaning to life now because it's pointing forward to a future hope. And so we can have that future hope demonstrated in our lives today. So that's the first thing. The hope of the resurrection motivates me to live for Jesus. Well, the next thing I want us to look at here is the hope of the resurrection enables me to wait for Jesus. It enables me to wait for Jesus. Now, Acts 24, 27 this is one of these kind of things that as you're reading through Acts, you can skip little passages like this. But, but here's Paul. He's made his way down into Jerusalem. He's been arrested. Acts 24, 27. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now just let that sink in for a second. For two years, just because he wants to do a favor for somebody, Paul is left in prison. Now, now as you re- replay those chapters in your mind, he's preaching the gospel, Paul is. He's being very effective in planting churches. His life is kind of, fall, uh, like kind of hitting on all cylinders. He's encouraging the churches, and then he gets to Jerusalem, and he's just languishing in prison. Two years, he's just waiting. You know, it just makes me ask the question for my own life, how do I respond when I face an unforeseen delay in my plans? How do I respond when what I expect doesn't turn out or when I have to wait on something I think would be very beneficial now? What if the best years of your life are passing you by in disappointment and you're sitting here and you're wondering, God, what are you doing? I I suspect Paul might have been able to relate Here he is, two years in prison. But what the hope of the resurrection did for him, and I hope it does for us and for me, is that we realize that God is in control. And so we can wait for him, even if his plans are completely different than our plans. Paul had good plans, godly plans, great plans. He wanted to go to Spain and preach the gospel. And here he is, two years waiting. The hope of the resurrection says, though, Someday, all is going to be made right. And all of this gospel advancement, it doesn't rely on me alone, we could say. But I want to be faithful. Someday, everything's going to be complete. I'll enjoy life without sin. And so, Father, help me to wait on you and your timing and live how you want right now. It it, it helps me see. when, When I see something as a delay, how can I say, essentially, If God is so in control that death is not the final word, if he can conquer death, then even my delay, God isn't delayed in his work. Even in me waiting, God is not waiting. He is still at work. Even while I'm wondering, God is not wondering. He is working by his spirit. And so maybe that's you here this morning. Maybe you're wondering, God, what are you doing in my life? I thought I'd be here by now, or I thought I'd be there, or I certainly didn't expect to kind of have this setback after setback, or have this sickness, or this diagnosis. We just have to remember, if God is able to conquer the dead, God is not delayed in his work. And so we can look around and we can say, God, how do you want me to live in light of this, trusting in you? And so we can say, the hope of the resurrection enables me to wait for Jesus. The hope of the resurrection enables me to wait for Jesus. The last thing I want us to see here, the the hope of the resurrection helps me be bold for Jesus. The hope of the resurrection helps me be bold for Jesus. Now, think about the logic of the resurrection. The, The resurrection of the dead, by definition brings hope in an otherwise hopeless situation. Just by definition, you know, there is uh, rising from the dead is about as amazing as you can get. Could we just all uh, agree on that? Like, wow, we would all be amazed if that happened. Where there was no hope, God brings hope where there is absolutely no chance of anything happening. That the grave couldn't be conquered, and now here is Jesus, and he's standing, and he's alive. Where we thought there was no way, God made a way. Maybe that's even you here. You've been investigating Christianity, you've been thinking about the meaning of life, and you've been wondering, what is the way? what How am I supposed to live? What is the pr- purpose of life? You're, you're wondering, how could possibly there be a way to figure out the meaning of life? And what I just want to submit to you here is The logic of the resurrection is the key that unlocks all of the scriptures and unlocks who God is because it says God would do all of this for you, that he would not spare his own son, but freely give him, that he would face death for you, the death you deserve, and then he would take up his life to show he has victory, that you can have life in him. And so Paul's own life bears this out not only in his testimony that he tells three times, but even as he's on the boat from Crete to Malta, it, here's 14 days, they're adrift at sea, and here's what it says in Acts 27:20. 20. I don't think I have a slide for this. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. All hope was eventually just, there's no hope here. Have you given up hope? Have you hope, given up hope of being saved or given hope, up hope that someone you know and love might be saved by the grace of God? Maybe you're resigned to living a life for yourself and just saying, well, I might as well just eat, drink, and be merry because it doesn't really matter, any of this stuff. Maybe you're just trying to squeeze as much enjoyment out of this life as you can, or, or you're in a deep depression because you wondered if there really is a point to it all and what point you, part you play in that. But what we see throughout the book of Acts and throughout the scripture is, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God can make you alive because he's conquered death the spiritual death that we have before God and the literal death that all of us are 100% certain to face. So then, where the resurrection is proclaimed, the message will be of hope for anyone. Why could Paul have hope and resurrection tied in his mind? Because he knows whenever God works, there is hope because he is able to conquer the grave. He is the one who saves so the hope of the resurrection helps us to live for Jesus. It, it helps us to be bold for Jesus. If this is the case, then I can speak up and I can be bold no matter who I'm talking to. You know, I love this. The, the last two words in the, in the original language in Greek of the book of Acts are boldness unhindered. Boldness unhindered. If I had a chance to kind of retitle the whole series, I would call it that. Because that's really what we've seen through the whole book of Acts But it's also really the conclusion of the book of Acts is that there is a hope that continues. We can continue to be bold and we can know that there is boldness that will be unhindered. The book, as it just kind of ends, we don't hear, did Paul make it to talk to Caesar? Was he kind of let go, go as many think he was as tradition holds and he goes to Spain and he's arrested again before he's eventually killed by Nero? We don't know. It just ends. But it's also kind of the point. Because this is the continuation. Even us sitting here right now is the continuation of the gospel going forth from Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so here we are. That's why we're a part of an organization. The organization, I think, is rightly named Acts 29, because it's the continuation of God's work that He's continued to do. And so. This hope, it wasn't just Paul's hope or the apostles' hope. The hope of the resurrection that continues today is our hope. We can say we are filled with hope because of the resurrection. Here's what we said the very first week in this series. I quoted, it's Johannes Blau. He was a missiologist in the early 60s, and he said this. He says, a theology of mission cannot be other than a theology of the church as the people of God called out of the world placed in the world and sent to the world the p- the church the theology of mission if we're going to talk about mission being on mission we have to talk about the church because the church is God's people who've been called out of the world sent placed in the world and sent to the world and so we can be bold Now God's sending you into the world where the hope of the resurrection is going to carry you forward with the gospel into new places. But your enduring hope is not in your own strength, but it's in the power of God that he displayed in the resurrection. Let's pray together. Father, as we continue to sing and as then we come around your table, Father, I pray that you would drive this hope of the resurrection deep into our hearts. None of us know what the rest of this day will hold or this week, this month, or this year. We make so many plans and yet we end up waiting so often, wondering why you delay. And yet, Lord, we can recognize you never delay. Your purposes are always done. We thank you for your grace. And so, Father, I pray that you would use us as a church, as those called out of the world and placed in the world, that you would send us to the world. For your glory we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's worship in song.